The year was 1940, and the Brits were overwhelmed and stunned at what was taking place. And in less than a year, they had watched as Adolf Hitler and his armies had steamrolled much of Eastern Europe. And just in a few months, that spring, 1940, they had witnessed this seeming superiority of the Nazis as they had overtaken France in just a matter of weeks. And now the Brits were facing the prospect of either a noxious peace with Hitler and the Germans, or a sustained bombing campaign and an eventual invasion of the German army on their island. As summer wore on, as the new prime minister sought to get his footing, they had every reason to feel overwhelmed and anxious, even fearful. In just recent weeks that summer, the Germans had begun, began a, a bombing campaign of the shipping lanes there, and in just recent days, bombing air bases and aircraft factories in Britain. The future looked bleak. The resources seemed low. The enemy appeared invincible. Only the efforts of some British pilots prevented the country from being overtaken at once. And speaking of pilots, it wasn't for nothing that the new prime minister named Winston Churchill said in Parliament on August 20, 1940, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. What do you do when forces like that seem too much to bear? What do you do when your own capacity, your own resources seem woefully insufficient? What do you do when you feel yourself losing the will to resist against overwhelming odds, where there's no end in sight, where there's no resources on the horizon, and where it seems there's no game-changing intervention at hand? In many ways, the things that the Brits felt in the summer of 1940 were felt hundreds of years earlier by the believers in Western Asia at the end of the first century A.D. in view of their spiritual circumstances. They wondered, is there hope? Will we survive? Who, if anyone, will help turn the tide? We're going to see that today in our passage. We're in week two of our equal, Without Equal series, looking at the person and supremacy of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, specifically in five chapter ones of New Testament books. Last week we were in Colossians 1. Next week we'll be in Hebrews 1. Christmas weekend we'll be in Matthew 1 and John 1. And today we're in Revelation 1. And I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles there. Revelation chapter 1, our text this morning. I hope you brought a Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, raise your hand. We'll give you a Bible. It's the last book in the Bible in the first chapter. You should find it there as we look at a handful of key verses there. Not necessarily a Christmas text in many people's minds, but it has everything to do with the Christ of Christmas, as we'll soon find out. Now, as we seek to grasp the significance and the potency of these verses in Revelation chapter 1, it's important for us to get a little bit of a framework for the book of Revelation, and especially for the three chapters and even this chapter in front of us today. Revelation represents a really unique book in the Bible's anthology. 
And in saying that, it doesn't mean that there aren't parallels or similarities elsewhere in the Bible, but it does mean there are some particular features unique to Revelation. The book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It was given by the angel to John for the believers. And the word revelation is actually the word apocalypse. Apocalyptic literature was a genre of writing that was typical, quite common in the time of Jesus and soon thereafter. And it had certain features. The writers of apocalypses usually used extensive symbolism in their historical reviews. It is characterized by a dualistic conception of history. There's the present world with its sin, rebellion against God, persecution of God's people, which is sharply contrasted with the world to come when God will intervene to establish his kingdom. There's the now, grave as it is, and there's the future, welcome as it is. Apocalyptic literature is strong on themes of coming judgment and strong in its use of symbolism, sometimes by an unnamed author, though we know the author here. His name is John. There's apocalyptic and prophetic literature elsewhere in the Bible, particularly Isaiah 24 to 27 and the last half of the book of Daniel, chapter 7 to 12. But it begs the question, what kind of literature, God-inspired scripture, is revelation? I think the best uh, New Testament introduction out there by three esteemed scholars, Doug Moo, Leon Morris, and D.A. Carson says it best. We may best view revelation as prophecy cast in apocalyptic mold written down in letter form. There's a prophetic word here written in the genre of apocalyptic literature in the form of a letter. Now, the second consideration beyond the whole book of Revelation is the particular context we have here. And the author, writing in Revelation 1.11, calls out seven churches in modern-day Turkey at the end or edge of what was called Western Asia Minor. He wrote, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Skip down a few verses at the end of chapter 1. The angel says to John, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now I've been to the site of those seven churches 20 years ago and I would have had the opportunity earlier this fall to take my wife with me at some meetings. Regrettably, COVID infected her and disqualified us both. So that will have to be a future hope. Some of you perhaps have been there. And these churches are the recipients of John's writing. And Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, is a key summary of what John wants to communicate in the entire letter. And the centerpiece of his message is that Jesus has perfectly gone before us and will powerfully conquer on behalf of us. Jesus has perfectly gone before us and he will powerfully conquer on behalf of us. And that's great news. Jesus is our lasting and secure hope. Jesus, as you see at the bottom of your notes there, is the central hero and the grand comforter in the drama of God. Now, the structure of verses 4 to 8, where we'll be this morning, 
deserves highlighting. Verses 4 and 8, front and back, are kind of a greeting and a benediction. This is from the Almighty God to these believers in the seven churches. Verses 5 to 7, come a little closer. Highlight the work of Jesus in the past and present, verse 5, and in the future, verse 7. And in the middle, verse 6, the end of verse 5 and verse 6, are a kind of doxology, a praise anthem to Jesus Christ and adoration of him. That's the summit, that's the culmination, the climax of what John is writing here. He's saying Jesus is the ultimate king. Jesus is God and he will reign over God, over all things as God. Let me ask you to stand. We're going to read Revelation 1, 1 uh, 4 to 8, a rather brief section. We do so in honor of the scriptures. I'm reading from the New International Version, verse 4, Revelation 1. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of God. Thanks. You may be seated. John is given divine revelation through a designated angel about the person of Jesus Christ for the benefit of believers both then and now. And this is his message. He begins with greetings, grace and peace, a standard greeting in the New Testament. The idea of blessing and generosity to those in need, that's what grace is, of well-being and shalom Wholeness in life, that's what peace is. The first grace was often used by the Greeks. The second shalom or peace was often used by the Jews. And the Christians incorporated both of those and added content in light of the person of Jesus Christ. More fascinating, perhaps, is the source of the greeting. It comes from multiple sources, multiple persons. First, grace and peace come from the Father. That's the meaning behind this phrase, who is and who was and who is to come. In fact, we hear that repeated in the book of Revelation. For instance, chapter 4, verse 8, we read, Each of the four living creatures had six wings, was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is the eternal one. He's the changeless one. Then we read of grace and peace from the seven spirits before his throne. And all kinds of speculation has gone up for almost 2,000 years about the identity there. We need to remember the genre of writing here. This is apocalyptic literature. Seven, for instance, is a number we see all over Revelation, all over the Bible. It's a, a number of completeness, of perfection. 
And further study of Revelation and the use of this phrase indicates its likely reference is to the Holy Spirit himself, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's how one uh, scholar says it. The seven spirits might conceivably refer to a group of angelic beings, but coming between references to the Father and the Son, it is more probable that this is an unusual way of designating the Holy Spirit. And I think he's right. Context matters as we interpret the scriptures. Third, final source of greetings is from Jesus Christ himself. So we have each member of the Trinity, Father, Son here, and Holy Spirit, affirming their connection to, their providence over believers. And this introduction is meant to be a great comfort to believers then and now as we face sufferings and hardship. Here's the Trinity, one nature, one essence, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit in total coordination, complete power. And for the next Three verses, the heart of this passage in your outline, uh, John exalts the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And he does so more than just his identity, but also the work he's done on behalf of you and on behalf of me. Praise starts in verse 5. Jesus leads as the pioneering shepherd. Many times in life, uh, we are asked the question, who are you? Or someone says to us, Tell me about yourself. Questions that we face sometimes in a job interview, in a personal introduction, on a resume, maybe before a speech we give. And the question is, how do you answer that? Who are you? It's always telling how someone presents themselves or is presented to others by another person. For instance, if I was asked that question, I could talk about my heritage. I'm the son of, and name my parents, my accomplishments. Here's what I've done. Current titles, here's what I'm called. Family status, whether married or children and the like. Previous experiences, where I've been. Hopes and desires and fears and longings. There are a lot of ways to answer that. Look what the angel says here about Jesus to John. Three things he names. Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who is able to communicate, to reveal the nature of God. He's the faithful witness. In the beginning, he was God. He is the word, the logos, the communication of God. He has made God known, John 1.18. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, he who has seen me... Has seen the Father? Around the world, if we polled people in all kinds of cultures and places, there's this gnawing question, whether whether verbalized or not, what's God like? One must look no further than Jesus, according to the Bible. He is the faithful witness to the truth about God. The angel adds, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We saw this last week in Colossians chapter 1. Here's what verse 18 there says. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. The Bible story goes like this, where sin reigned, death reigned. But Jesus, as we saw last week, stopped the spiritual math. 
Jesus changed the destiny. He provided a detour for those who trust in him. They can live again. Death is not a cul-de-sac, but a doorway for those who follow Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, wasn't the first to come back from the dead. There was Elijah. Jesus raised Lazarus. But Jesus' resurrection was unique. It was different. It ushered in a whole new era of resurrection for those who follow him. Jesus was not only the ideal, perfect martyr who came back to life, but he shows us how to live as martyrs, witnesses, even sufferers, because he offers us life beyond this one. Third description from the angel to the question, who is Jesus? He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. You see it there in the text. Remember back in the temptation of Jesus early in his public ministry where the devil came to him and sought to derail him from what God had assigned and he promised him, the devil did Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world. Little did the devil know what he was offering because Jesus would already have them. Psalm 89 is one of the messianic psalms we read there in verse 27. I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. That's the destiny of Jesus. And through his faithfulness in death, through his vindication in the resurrection, Jesus will one day be universally acknowledged over all kings, over all kingdoms, including so many then and now which have set themselves up against Jesus. That gives us hope, friends. Jesus is king. Many years ago, 25 or so to be exact, Philip Yancey wrote his classic book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And he said this, Jesus' first coming did not solve the problems of planet Earth. That's an understatement. We still live in a messy, sinful, broken world. Rather, it presented a vision of God's kingdom to help break the earthly spell of delusion. Jesus reminded us in this lost and broken world that this is not all that there is. One day, through him, a new king, a new world order, would be realized. And those who know him, those who follow him, can live in the present in light of that certain expectation. Which means that you and I, if we know him, bear witness to him through the hard times and difficult circumstances of our lives because we know this is not all there is. Someday... The coming king will reign for all to see. He will bring about justice for all to see. He will wipe every tear for you and for me. Jesus is the pioneering shepherd. He leads us through this life because we anticipate his reign in the next one. This is not all there is. Second, Jesus reigns as the saving king. End of verse 5, verse 6. If you look at most of verse 5, it describes who Jesus is. But if you look at the end and verse 6, the, the, the angel describes to John what Jesus does. And it's again a threefold description. And, and again, the angel is giving this to John to encourage the believers back then and the, the believers now 
of the magnitude of God's grace to them in the past, in the present, and in the future. This verse, verse 6, is the culmination, the climax, the summit of all that the angel wants to say to John for us. And in the end, all he can do is lift his voice in praise and adoration, worship to Jesus. It ends in exaltation. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Sometimes we read the Bible and we think it's a list of bullet points for what we should change or do differently in life. Sometimes we're, we read the Bible and we're always looking for actionable steps or a to-do list of what we ought to change. But sometimes the very best application of the scriptures in whatever setting you hear or read them is worship and adoration of a God who is sovereign, a God who has grace, a God who plans, a God who cares. Sometimes the best application of scripture is not what you go do differently, but how you think of God differently in adoration and worship. And that's true in our passage today. That we would say at the end of this to him, be glory and power forever and ever. Even saying, and in my life, God, each and every day. We find three reasons here. First, we worship Jesus Christ because of his great love for us. Not just the one-time feeling he had, not just the one-time act he did, but an ongoing, ever-true reality. Jesus Christ loves his people. Present tense, for you now if you know him. If you belong to Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, the Bible reassures you Jesus loves you. Nothing can change that settled commitment, that deep affection he has for you. And that should be great news to you, that you and I are secure in the love of Jesus Christ. A number of weeks ago in the book of Ephesians, we read that. Chapter 3, verse 18, I pray that you, Paul writes, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge. Even when you can't comprehend it or put it into words, if you know Jesus, you are loved. Secondly, the angel tells John that, that we have been freed from our sins by Jesus' blood. This is written in the past tense and for good reason because God worked in Jesus at a point in time. The story of Jesus wasn't finished at the incarnation, far from it. Or even in the affection and allegiance that Jesus showed to his followers during his time on earth. Jesus came to die. He said so himself. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life so that he could die on the cross and shed his blood and be our substitute, be acceptable to the Father, and therefore free us from our sins. See, Jesus came with a purpose. His life was pointing at the cross from the start. In fact, even before that point. And at the cross, Jesus showed the full extent of his love, he said. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering 
and sacrifice to God. And the result is now that you and I can be freed from our sins. The word freed there is literally to be loosed, to be unbound, to be unhitched from our sin. Every person who lives on planet earth apart from Jesus Christ is captive, is a prisoner to their own sin and consequences. You and I run around trying to escape sin like we try to escape our own shadow. But we can't. Wherever we go, it goes with us and belongs to us. We need someone external, a liberator from the outside to separate that from us. Not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin to hold us down in our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. The sovereign God is accomplishing his purposes on earth through the Son, very God himself. John makes clear that all that Christ does to wrap up human history is rooted in his sacrificial death. The cross, friends, is the hinge point of history. And it offers us spiritual freedom. The question this morning as we hear this is, do you have that freedom? Have you experienced, do you know the, the revolutionary reality of being unhinged, unhitched, loosed from the bondage of sin? Third achievement that Jesus accomplishes is the making of a new people. The angel tells John that Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. This is language that harkens all the way back to the Old Testament. We read as God speaks to his chosen people at the time, the Jews, Exodus 19.6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But now, because of Christ, the rest of humanity is joined in that calling because of the leveling work of the cross. Now people from various backgrounds, various cultures, Jews and Gentiles, can be part of God's new people through Jesus. It's called the church. And a Jewish follower of Jesus, Peter, said as much. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen people, writing to Jews and Gentiles called to faith in Jesus Christ, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Incredible. You and I, if we've been reconciled to God through Christ, are called to be priests in God's service. What's a priest do? A priest speaks to God on behalf of men and to men on behalf of God. Believers are assigned to this responsible task by their God. They're to pray to God for the world and witness to the world of what God has done. Our role is like a two-way street, directing spiritual traffic. We pray to God on behalf of people, and we speak to people on behalf of God. What a calling. And that's ours if we know Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we have been made to be a kingdom of people who represent God on earth. Not that you and I have yet ushered in the kingdom in its fullness. That will only happen when Jesus 
one day returns. But you and I are a foretaste, a preview. We're the hors d'oeuvres of the kingdom of Jesus. So people taste and see what the king and the kingdom is like. The kingdom of God will not will grow on earth as the church, that's us, creates an alternative society. Love that phrase, alternative society, demonstrating what the world is not but one day will be. We in the church, Jesus' successors, we're his followers, are left with the task of displaying the signs of the kingdom of God and the watching world will judge the merits of the kingdom by us. You want to see Jesus? They watch you and me to see what he and his kingdom is like. No wonder this angel gushes in praise to Jesus. To him be glory and power. Glory, the weight of honor deserved by Jesus. Power, the word there is actually dominion, that the one who rightfully reigns over all. To him be all, because he's king. The angel cries out, In that regard, and so do we, and so does every last person who belongs to Jesus Christ. You and I have a wondrous future. But for those who don't, third and finally, Jesus comes as the final judge. See, the baby in the manger could never stay there. He had a life to live. He had a death to die. He had a grave to conquer. He had a return to pursue. He had a people to save, a throne to occupy, and a world to judge. For you and for me, if we know Jesus, that's sobering news in a fallen, sinful world. For those who don't know him, whether actively or passively ignored, rejected him, the coming judgment of Jesus is terrible news. All of us, deep down, have an unquenchable desire for justice in our world. The old saying is true. We want mercy for ourselves and justice for others. And when we come to know Jesus Christ, our longing for justice doesn't evaporate. As God works his compassion in us and through us for the cause and the eternity of other people, our longing for justice doesn't go away. Deep down, we want a God who will judge what is wrong and evil and bad. And if you don't believe that, then you've never really been wronged or had someone close to you experience the same. This year has been a particularly difficult one for a relative of mine. Someone who has endured what to me is unspeakable malice and wrong and sin. And I've watched him undergo this trial, the likes of which he's never faced before. And most of us won't in our lifetimes, apart from the challenge of health complications often at the end of life. I've seen him wrenched with pain and anger and frustration and doubt and resignation. And I've joined him and others in praying for God's justice, preferably soon, to those who've done him wrong. And I'll admit, I don't like God's timing much of the time, and certainly not here. But I believe in the perfect timing of God, and I believe in his coming judgment. And I believe, because the Bible tells me so, that Jesus will one day make all things right. That he will punish all 
wrongs, that he will exact justice in our world. And you and I should be comforted knowing that God sees, God knows, God acts. John was one of those who was comforted. Verse 9 of Revelation 1, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because the word of God, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's visions here are a source of comfort for suffering and persecuted believers in all ages, including ours or the years to come. But what's said in Revelation 1-7 is even greater than that. It's not just that God would exact justice, that he would right wrongs in individual circumstances and lives. It's that Jesus will come and be the final judge over all who have responded to him, against him, whether actively or in apathy. He, he borrows, the angel does, language from the Old Testament about the, the coming son of man who will who will come in the power of God to judge the world. We read about that, for instance, in Daniel 7, 13. In my vision at night I looked, he wrote, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. See, same language. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people, see same language, of every language worshipped him. His dominion, see same language as Revelation 1, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. God is eternal. And at the end of time, Jesus Christ will come at the end of history to judge and to save. And those who have pierced him, who have rejected him, who have opposed him, who have ignored him, will mourn his coming individually and collectively. That's sobering news for us. This week, in some of my reading, I was greatly struck by what one apologist by the name of Peter Kreeft wrote about justice and God's timing. Justice delayed is not necessarily justice denied, he writes. There will come a day when God will settle accounts and people will be held responsible for the evil they've perpetrated and the suffering they've caused. Criticizing God for not doing it right now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. God will bring accountability at the right time. In fact, the Bible says one reason he's delaying is because some people are still following the clues and have yet to find him. He's actually delaying the consummation of history out of his great love for them. And in light of that, it should motivate those of us who know him to pray and to speak and to urge. We pray not only come quickly, Lord Jesus, but God, give us time to bear witness. We speak the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves and demonstrates that in our lives. We urge, inviting, begging people to turn from sin, to turn to Christ, because we know judgment is coming. And if they don't, that judgment is terrible and eternal. The Christ of Christmas came as a baby, 
but he's no longer harmless. He never was. He's the reigning Lord. He's the coming judge. The first coming happened, and the second coming is guaranteed. And all people everywhere are called to repent. And that's part of the Christmas message. Don't believe me? Here's what the song says. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. You want the scriptures to say that? Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, a son is given. Oh, how sweet. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. See, Jesus is the central hero. And the grand comforter in the drama of God. The angel ends with a benediction in similar ways that he opened. But this time with words from God himself. A God who describes himself who is and who was and who is to come. A God who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Just as the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet signify an eternal nature. God is the beginning and end of history. He's the purpose of the cosmos. God, demonstrated in Jesus, is sovereign over all. He concludes, God does, by calling himself the Almighty. The word is used ten times in the New Testament, nine of them in Revelation. The word means ruler over all. God displays in Jesus, the one who began in human form as a baby, the Christ of Christmas, that he is ultimately the king, that he reigns supreme, that no one and nothing can stop him. And this message is given through John to believers to comfort them and to give them hope in a wicked, wayward world. It's meant to comfort us and to give us hope in a wicked, wayward world. That the babe in the manger is sovereign. He's in control. He's looking out for you. He will bring you home. And he will bring about justice in every part of the cosmos. Including in your life. A few verses later, Revelation 1.17, John writes... When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. 
and I hold the keys of death and Hades, which for those who know Jesus Christ should cause us to worship and rejoice because he is the, our ultimate king. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much that you have not left us alone, but that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to show us what you're like. Thank you that he came not just as a figurine for us to observe and marvel at, but he came as a person to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to show us mercy, to satisfy your justice to teach us how to live and give us the power to do so, and someday to return as the coming king and judge. Help us to live with joy and anticipation. Help us to live with sobriety and urgency. Help us to live in light of the king that you are and the king that the world will see you to be. Thank you that you are the king. May we worship and adore you as such. In Jesus' name, amen.